0: I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com.
1: Welcome to the RAIN Insights Podcast from RAIN Network. In this podcast series, David Lawrence, co founder of RAIN, speaks with Dr. Bjorn Lomborg on his research on approaches to creating positive impacts in the world. He's an author and president of the think tank Copenhagen Consensus Center. He's also the former director of the Danish government's Environmental Assessment Institution in Copenhagen. His publication centers around finding efficient solutions to tackling some of the world's most pressing issues. Let's listen into this week's conversation
2: it's a truly a great pleasure and honor and as we were chatting beforehand uh, I, I feel like one of these uh, callers to sports talk uh, radio who says longtime listener first-time caller so uh, <laughs> as I mentioned um, it was I think back in 2015 you wrote a what I thought was a very insightful uh, and very timely uh, op-ed for the Wall Street journal on climate change which I Quickly distributed to a number of clients and internally here at, at Rain, and it's it's great to, you know, some, uh, it's now 2024, uh, almost a decade later to um, catch up with you, and um, again uh, I'll start with congratulations on uh, the book Best Things First, uh, which I believe the Economist named uh, one of the best books of 2023. So, thank you for spending thank some you. time with
0: us and thank uh, you David thanks for the invite.
2: Um, so I always like to begin with uh, asking um, the guests to talk a little bit about not only where they are today but how they got here and what they tr- what basically their you know their purposes these days and mm-hmm. I, then I have some specific obviously topics that I think will be of great interest to our
0: network. Oh, thank you. Yes, so uh, look, I'm uh, uh, I'm a Danish native, so from Denmark, uh, I uh, used to be sort of, you know, your standard sort of worried uh, academic, uh, worried about environment, worried about a lot of different things, uh, and I uh, also tried to make university a little more interesting. I felt like my own university experience wasn't all that exciting, so when I started teaching at the university, uh, I tried to make it more interesting, tried to get my students involved in several different kinds of ways and at one point I read an article by a, a guy named Julian Simon who said contrary to what you think uh, much of the environment is actually improving and I, I thought that, oh that can't be true that just must be wrong but he said go check the data and you know I teach statistics and so I figure, oh that'll be fun we'll actually have fun disproving of course he's wrong but you know it'll be fun. And so I wrote a book uh, called The Skeptical Environmentalist, and it ended up, it was not intended by any means, but it ended up being a, a global bestseller, uh, challenging a lot of the beliefs that we have around the world and, on climate. But it goes further than that, because really the point is if we're worried about some things, it probably also means that we're unworried or too little worried about other things. And that really means that we end up focusing our efforts and our energies and our money on some things rather than other uh, and I want to make sure that we spend it on the right things. So really what I've been doing for the last 20 years with my uh, think tank called the Copenhagen consensus uh, Where we work with uh, more than 300 of the world's top economists and seven Nobel laureates uh, in economics Is try to say look of all the different places we can spend money Where can you get the biggest bang for your buck? Where can you do the most good for the world for every dollar spent? And that's really what Best Things First is about. It's really a question of saying, we can't do everything at once, so why don't we do the smartest stuff first?
2: Bjorn, so um, what you've outlined is something that, at least on the surface, seems logical, rational. Obviously, the economist thought so, and your book is uh, you know, obviously uh, also taken off can you maybe expand a little bit um, as you've gone out to look at sort of what are the issues we're overlooking and where can we have the most
0: impact I would love to because that is essentially the 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 backbone of the book Uh, so in 2015 Uh, The world came together and actually made a promise of all the things that we wanted to deliver for the world in 2030. It's called the Sustainable Development Goals. And every country in the world, including the U.S., including every country in Europe and everywhere else, has signed up to this. Uh, And, and, you know, if you ask a lot of well-meaning people uh, and all these UN ambassadors who did that and all the uh, global leaders who did it, obviously a well-meaning. You will very easily end up having them, oh, oh, we want to promise everything. Oh, and we want to promise as much as we can. So fundamentally, this very grand document promises that we're going to eradicate hunger. We're going to eradicate poverty. Which, of course, is nice, but there's probably no chance of us doing either by 2030, but it's a nice thing. But it also then goes on and says, we're going to get rid of corruption, we're going to get rid of war and get rid of global warming, which, of course, is incredibly hard to imagine that we can actually achieve. And then we're also gonna get you know, good education to everyone. We're gonna get equal pay. We're gonna have jobs for everyone. We're gonna have organic apples and community gardens for handicapped people. And so on. Yeah, the, the, there's a, the whole gamut of everything that we should do. And it's all nice, but we can't do it all. And so what we try to do is then to say, look, of all these things we promised, what are actually the very best things to do first? And what we find is, Is 12 amazing things, and we define amazing by saying that if you spend a dollar, you will deliver at least $15 of social benefits back. Uh, That's obviously an arbitrary limit. Our Nobel uh, said it, but you know, it just simply one place to put the marker down. That's why we find just 12 amazing things. There's a lot of nice things to do in the world, but there are 12 amazing things, and those are some things like. Tackle tuberculosis and malaria. Uh, these are two incredibly uh, uh, deadly diseases. Uh, malaria also makes a lot of people sick, and we know how to fix it. We can do so very cheaply. Uh, maternal and newborn health. Uh, you know, 300,000 moms die in childbirth every year. Uh, uh, sorry, 2.3 million kids die in the first 28 days on, 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 on Earth. Uh, and we could easily half that or more. Uh, focus on nutrition, chronic diseases, childhood immunization. Education is a huge issue. Get better nutrition through agricultural research and development. And there's, you know, 12 amazing things. And the bottom line, just to put it very, very bluntly, is if you spend $35 billion a year, which, of course, is not nothing. I I don't have that money. I I don't think, David, you have that money either. Uh, But, you know, in the global setup, this is a, you know, uh, this is a rounding error. $35 billion a year could save 4.2 million lives each and every year and it could generate benefits worth $1.1 trillion to the world's poor each and every year. And that means we estimate for every dollar spent, you could do $52 worth of social benefit. This is literally some of the best things to do in the world.
2: So Bjorn, uh, the reason I was absolutely fascinated by the book is that I actually thought it transcended uh, your thesis which is there are things we can do. There's a, I'll use the term, a return on investment. There's a tangible ROI. And um, we don't want to lose sight of what we can do because we're very focused on things that perhaps are more difficult or in fact beyond our control. But I actually thought it was relevant to what I'll refer to as solving a social dilemma, which is a notion where people are increasingly distrustful of institutions, they feel increasingly helpless and overwhelmed by uh, various problems, and a notion that the world is in fact not making progress. And what your book seemed to suggest, or didn't seem to suggest, what your book did convey to me at least, is that there is there are reasons for optimism And there are reasons where we can have tangible progress, and tangible progress that everyone can see, and that Mm. there are also social benefits to that, particularly, particularly uh, with a younger generation that is looking at the world and wondering, you know, is anybody addressing these concerns?
1: Yeah.
0: I think I think you're right on 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 both levels really. Uh, first of all, I, I I think we just simply have to stop with this sense of the world is coming apart. This is the end kind of thing. Uh, on all reasonable measures, things are much much better. You know, the obvious thing is we uh, used to live in 1900. The average life expectancy was 32. Uh, last year in 2023, the average life expectancy on planet Earth was 73. Each one of us has more than two lifetimes on Earth. That's just a phenomenal benefit, a phenomenal opportunity, and we're much better educated. Uh, 90% were illiterate 200 years ago. Uh, today, 90% illiterate. Uh, we've gone from about 90% being poor uh, to less than 10% being poor, actually. Last year in 2023, we estimate 8.6% of the world's population was poor, which is the lowest that ever been in human history. This does not mean that there are no problems. There's still 10% that are illiterate. There's still 8.6% that are uh, uh, below an absurdly low poverty limit of what we used to call $1 a day, which is now 2 dollars per day. Uh, but yeah, there's still lots of problems. But fundamentally, the world is on the right track. We need to let our kids and everybody know this. There's still plenty to be done, but it's not this end of the world kind of thing. The second part is because what we do is we highlight these incredibly good investments. There is. You don't really have to take my word for it. Again, this is not me. Uh, I, I've been working with uh, more than a hundred world's top economists, several Nobel laureates. These are the guys who've actually written these period papers that are published in in uh, uh, Journal of Benefit Cost Analysis. Uh, but you know, fundamentally, what they find is, take for instance, education. Huge problem. Lots of kids. Uh, about 350 million kids mostly in poor countries still almost don't learn anything they go to school but they learn very little one of the ways that we could avoid or improve that dramatically is by investing in what's known as teach at the right level Uh, you need to teach each kid at his or her own level, We don't today because if you have 50 kids, you know, you have to teach at some sort of a median of all the kids and that means some kids are far ahead and bored and some kids are far behind and have no idea what's going on. But if you put them in front of a tablet once a day, one hour. That can actually, with with educational software, this educational software will very quickly pick up exactly which level you are at and start teaching you at that level. So if you go to school for a year, most of the time, you know, the seven hours are just gonna be the same old boring school that doesn't really work very well. This is mostly in poor countries. But one hour a day, you're actually gonna learn a lot with this tablet. After one year, studies show very conclusively, you will have learned as much as you normally would in three years of school you'll just simply turbo charge your learning and this is so good it'll cost about 31 dollars per kid per year and this is including all the you know uh, stupidity and corruption some some people will be incompetent and some of these uh, 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 tablets won't be charged and all that stuff this is including all that We estimate that you can roll this out in big scale, and we've already done it in several different places. We're involved in also trying to do this in Malawi. But if you do this generally, you could actually teach kids much better so that when they become adults, they'll be much more productive. They'll be able to both make more money for their family and, of course, uh, improve their country's uh, economic profile. This is just fantastic. Every dollar spent will deliver 65 dollars of good. We estimate the total cost for for doing this for almost half a billion uh, kids is going to be in the order of 9.8 billion dollars a year. So this is the most expensive part of what we're talking about, it's not nothing but again it's a very small sum and it will deliver its benefit back 65 times. And that's the point. Again, you said a lot of people are sort of skeptical about news organizations and everybody else telling you this, that, and the other. These are such big numbers. These are such amazing numbers, even if you don't quite trust them. We know from so many sources this is just going to be revelatory. This is just going to change kids' life. It's going to make the school better and it'll actually make these countries move on a faster growth path. So again, even if you're skeptical, this is just a a no-brainer, and we should definitely be pushing that as one of the the 12.
2: So you also highlighted the fact that your ideas come from an international group, which I would argue is, you know, I hate to use bipartisan, maybe it's tripartisan, (laughs) but basically uh, from people who, are committed to advancing their ideas based upon data and intellectual rigor and intellectual honesty. Maybe you can just talk about how your organization came together and why that's so important. Not simply in terms of surfacing great ideas, but to, I'll, I'll use the term, to imbue these ideas with a sense of trust and why people you know, can pay attention to these things.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, it's, I, I I don't really. It's not really in the Danish psyche to harp on on your own benefits, but I'll try a little bit uh, and 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 just <laughs> fundamentally say that uh, you know we're not really in the process of trying to sell anything. You know, honestly, I couldn't care if it was uh, was tablets. It turns out it's tablets, but it's not like I I don't have ownership in any tablet producing company. And, you know, I could imagine it would have been a lot of other uh, things that came out first. We simply work with tons of different economists. We actually work, work with more than 50 teams of economists across all these different areas that the world has promised to try to identify what does knowledge tell us about where you can spend relatively little money and get huge outside, uh, outsized uh, uh, results back. And so when we talk, for instance, with Noam Angrist, who's at Oxford University, who's been working on on, uh, educational policies, and a lot of other education economists uh, who co-authored this paper, what they basically all told us was the very best way is to get learning at the right level. There are several different ways to do it. Uh, the, I, I told you the most exciting one, because again, we're, we're trying to do a podcast here. Uh, a slightly less exciting one is that you just simply separate the cl- uh, kids one hour a day into different classes according to what they're actually able to do. Pradham uh, in India, for instance, do this. Uh, there's also another way to try to get Teachers to be uh, better teachers uh, by providing them with structured teacher plans. Uh, There's been large scale studies, for instance, Kenya is now doing it for their entire country, and it simply helps the teacher be less disorganized. And, you know, oh, this week we're talking fractions. Uh, And so there's actually a a plan for how you go through the fractions, how you tell your students about it. Uh, The teacher's not going to follow it entirely, but it's probably going to make the teacher a little better, a little more uh, uh, pedagogical, and it'll teach the kids better because this is very cheap. Uh, It's actually an even better deal. And what we're saying is, look, we're not saying you should do this, that, or the other, but we're offering these three amazing ideas. Uh, So, you know, try one of them and, and see if your kids don't actually become much smarter. This is what we do across the range. And there's lots and lots of places where we don't really have good solutions. There are lots of problems that don't have amazing solutions and you know they still have pretty good solutions and of course we should do those eventually but if we don't have money for everything our argument and that's really just a very very simple point if you can't do everything do the smart stuff first and that's of course why the book is called best things first
2: well bjorn i'm actually going to go back to let's call it a uh perhaps an unintended or side benefit uh, because in a highly divisive world where very little is getting done, um, I would argue this is not only about the smart expenditure of funds and addressing problems. I think you refer to it as the, the doable dozen. Is that doing Yeah, that we,
0: we didn't come up with that as a, oh, okay. as a pap- so, newspaper, but it's a very good quote, yeah.
2: Okay, okay, around, you know, everything from diseases and you know uh, issues around nutrition and agriculture and you know education etc but the notion again that problems can be solved as a broader I'll call it thesis around society and what holds us together and what can drive the political process i think is incredibly incredibly important and you know, there, there are a lot of tropes around this. You know, you start with the small stuff. You know, every journey begins with, a, you know, with the first mm. step, all, all these things. But the fact that there are important issues out there that can be solved and can be highlighted and where there is an ROI on the investment is something that I feel really has been missing from um, caught this social dialogue and is absolutely necessary for the fabric that holds society together. Because if too many people feel they can no longer trust institutions, their problems are not being solved, they can't be solved, there is no trusted center of knowledge and effort. Things disintegrate very, very quickly, and I've been very much paying attention. Um, there was a wonderful essay also in the journal by uh, Gerard Baker about the loss of institutional trust. The Gallup polls that have been coming out, at least here in the U.S., around um, distrust and mistrust of government agencies, of the press, of you know our legal institutions, etc., are are among the things that I think are most alarming and speak the loudest about where we are. Mm-hmm. So. As I read your book and as I'm listening to you now, I think that there is a very, very important side benefit to the thesis that you are pushing, which is not just about the specific issues you can you know, address, mm-hmm. but the broader issues that yeah. are now confronting us.
0: And, and, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I should just preface this with saying, you know, look, one book is not going to fix the uh, uh, the crisis of, uh, of institutional trust or anything else. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's part of a, a, a move towards that. But I think what we have become so obsessed with is that we focus on the thing that has the most crying babies or the cutest animals to save, or you know the, uh, the NGOs that have the best protests and make for, for the best TV uh, pictures. And I get why that works, but it's probably not the right way to spend money. Uh, and, and that's why we're, we're sort of the boring guys that just come over and say, well, actually you can spend money much, much more effectively by focusing on these very solvable problems and not just solvable but incredibly effectively solvable problems not everything has that characteristic and but some things do and i think you're absolutely right just telling people about it makes you know the world a better place and makes people m- more more hopeful but it also and at the same time starts that conversation which I totally agree with you on we all need to have much more of that conversation when our politicians tell us oh we should do a b and c well sorry how much is a going to cost and how much good is it going to do compared to b and c you know get a sense of proportion and and again we're just starting this conversation with best things first in the sense of saying these are so outsized amazingly good investments that it's hard to imagine that most people wouldn't agree to most of them now again you know when you tell politicians all these 12 things uh they're not gonna pick up all 12 of them and that's fine there nothing ever you know we have a saying in the copenhagen consensus this, this is not about getting it right it's about getting it slightly less wrong you know if we can move the needle in the right direction, I'm all happy. And what we typically find is that politicians, for various different reasons, will say no to most of these things because it just doesn't fit or you know, the, the attention is not there right now. But we give them ideas and they'll probably pick up one or two and that's what it takes to make a better world. So, you know, I'm all excited if people just pick up on some of these.
2: That's great. And uh, it also inspires people to begin to think differently about what they can do or what yeah. their work involves and how you know they can make a difference. I'm reminded, uh, this goes back, I, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the economist and uh, sometime uh, movie and TV actor Ben Stein, uh, but he wrote a uh, op-ed piece for the New York Times a number of years ago, which caused a tremendous um, amount of controversy about why he was no longer going to donate to his alma mater, Yale, and it was based on this thesis that his dollar was not going to really generate an ROI, that the endowment was already so big that any incremental benefit um, was not going to change things, and so he was talking about the different places where he felt there was an ROI, so I'm a little bit reminded uh, about that, but I'm also reminded uh, about various um, sort of not-for-profits that sort of came to life probably a quarter century ago that began to rate the not-for-profits in terms of the efficiency of the spend and the impact on on their causes and and try to give people a sense of where their dollars um, could be spent but maybe you can also talk about, I'll call it individual responsibility and entrepreneurship because there are a lot of uh, people who are trying to build businesses that will solve problems simultaneously and when I say build businesses meaning they're trying to find a, a foundation for sustainable capital sometimes these are not for profits sometimes you know it's these are actual businesses and to come to mind that we have worked very closely with there's something called the Child Mind Institute which It's led by a noted psychiatrist, Dr. Harold Kopowitz, who has devoted his life to, uh, before this became in vogue, uh, the profound and unaddressed mental health issues uh, facing young people, um, including through their college years. Uh, The the Khan Academy, innovating Mm -hmm. ways to learn on scale inexpensively, et cetera, et cetera. But maybe you can. Talk from your vantage point about what the individual can do or what you're seeing entrepreneurs are doing to also address some of these issues.
0: Yeah. So it's it's important to say first, we, we focus on the world's poor half, so we focus on what's called uh, low and lower middle-income countries, uh, simply because that's where the need is the greatest and typically the solutions are the cheapest, so that's where you're going to find the highest ROI. Uh, a lot of people will start sort of saying, I want to fix something in New York or in the US or in my home country or in my uh, you know, city, uh, and that's also great, and I'm not going to you know, say that you shouldn't do that. but clearly if you want to do the most good you can in the world these are some of the things where you can do a lot of good uh, I should also just say unfortunately when we say you know you can get $65 back on 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 uh, investing in in tablets for instance in education uh, it's unfortunately not something where you can get $65 back it's not a get rich quick scheme of course. it's a way to do good for the world. Uh, And and so it's essentially a good way to say, if I want to give away, how do I give really smartly? But it's not a a get-rich-quick scheme. Uh, But absolutely, the important part here is there's a lot of expensive ways to try to fix uh, problems, but there are often very few very, very smart ways to fix these problems. And that's where we need entrepreneurs. We need a lot of smart people to come up with good ideas. Uh, so for instance, when we talked about nutrition, uh, you know, very obviously this is a huge problem in the world. It used to be a lot bigger. Uh, remember uh, about a hundred years ago, uh, the uh, League of Nations, the precursor to the UN estimated about two thirds of the world's population were in permanent deprivation that is you know, essentially starving or not getting enough food two-thirds uh, today that number is down to a little less than 10 percent so again phenomenal progress but there's still huge uh issue and lots of things to be done there's more than 700 million people uh, still essentially starving or being malnourished how do you fix that well one sort of simple approach to that would be to say oh we need to you know Give out more food. That seems like an obvious thing. Uh, the problem, of course, is if you give away free food. First of all, you make it hard for uh, uh, farmers to produce for next year, uh, and so you actually sustain the problem uh, in, in in a certain respect. Uh, but you also open up for new, immense amounts of corruption uh, because if you start selling food to a government agency, they'll then distribute it further on. You'll sell some of the worst food, typically at inflated prices. So I, I uh, uh, had the pleasure of meeting with the uh, with the minister responsible in India for food, um, and she asked me to try to taste one of these. Biscuits that they uh, distribute to uh, uh, to uh, uh, to poor children. She actually advised me against, it and I I Im- instantly regretted it when I, I tried a little bit because they they're b- basically inedible. Uh, you know, you really have to be starving in in order to wanting to do this. But of course, they make a lot of middlemen incredibly rich. So there's a lot of bad ways to do this. But what we found when we asked all the economists was focus on doing what actually worked back in the 60s and 70s, which was the first green revolution, where we made these amazing steps in making yields much higher for wheat, rice, and corn. Uh, You basically found a way to make uh, uh, rice and wheat and corn uh, about three times as high yield in, in a span of 10, 15 years. And that, of course, means you give out these seeds And instead of getting a little bit of food, you get a lot of food. This means two things. The farmer can produce much more, so actually makes more money. But because each one of these products is now cheaper, it also is better for all the citizens, the people who are uh, living in the cities, because they can buy cheaper food. This is a win-win situation, and we should be investing a lot more in agriculture, research, and development. It's not an obvious thing, it doesn't pull your heartstrings in the same way as, as handing out free food, but it's actually a much, much more effective way, both because it utilizes knowledge. So instead of handing out lots of food and you have to keep doing this year after year, you're handing out information, which means you just need to do this once, and then you have high yielding varieties. And of course, that's where we need the entrepreneurs. We need lots of smart people working on, for instance, improving agricultural uh, outputs so we get these high yields that'll make the world a much better place.
2: That's great. Let me uh, shift because uh, I'll go back to your 2015 op ed, but you've spoken and written about this. As you think about climate change, and uh, unfortunately, what I'll refer to in the current environment, um, people are, they're, they're in in what is a nuanced, I I believe a very nuanced problem and nuanced opportunities, uh, very often messages get distorted. Maybe you can share with us a little bit about your thinking about climate change and, Hmm. and the potential opportunities to address climate change and how to understand the issue.
0: So I address climate change, just like you've heard me address all the other uh, issues as an optimization problem. So there is very clearly a real issue. So putting out more CO2, mostly from fossil fuels, means we increase uh, uh, the uh, uh, the temperature of the planet uh, and a lot of other uh, uh, associated uh, uh, impacts. And these are mostly negative in impact. So, you know, remember, uh, both Boston and uh, Miami are well suited for their temperatures and if but if they you know they've built up all their infrastructure over the last 200 years to in, uh, uh, in Boston to be cold and in Miami to be warm if either of those cities see a temperature change either that it gets warmer or it gets colder they will experience a problem. Now it's incredibly important to say it's not the end of the world. So the only climate economist to uh, win the Nobel Prize in climate economics, uh, William Nordhaus from Yale University, estimate that if we do nothing against climate, uh, the impact is going to be equivalent by the end of the century to about a 4% GDP loss. Now remember, by then we'll be about 450%, according to the UN, about 450% richer, as rich as we are today on average, uh, and so it will feel like because of global warming, we will only be 434% as rich. This sort of puts it in perspective. It's a problem because it's a better world that is 450% as rich rather than one that's only 434% as rich, but of course it's not the end of the world. we're, we're, we're still going to be much better off, but slightly less, much better off. And that sets the context correctly for saying it's not the end of the world and it's not nothing it's a problem, and it's a problem we need to tackle smartly. Now, there's a lot of ways that we're trying to tackle global warming that will end up being fantastically costly. Uh, so there are two new uh, period uh, results out. The first one's actually, uh, and I wrote about them in three or four months ago in, in Wall Street Journal, on the cost of net zero, which of course is what pretty much all Uh, at least western uh, politicians have signed up to do uh, to go net zero by say 2050 uh, and and the uh, surprising uh, uh, fact is that there's actually never been a formal analysis of how much is this going to cost compared to how much good is going to do. Uh, and I'm just going to give you the very short version of this. Uh, there are uh, three estimates of cost, one estimate of benefit uh, overall, and these are based on you know, uh, literally dozens of uh, pretty much everything that we have in the literature for the last 30 years And what are the costs, what are the benefits. And what it turns out is the total benefit of going net zero uh, throughout this century is probably equivalent to about four and a half trillion dollars in benefit which is great that means you know it's both a real problem it's a 4.5 trillion dollar problem and we can actually fix that we can do a lot of good the problem is The cost of doing that, so the cost of going net zero, and this is assuming the politicians are reasonably smart about it, which is not entirely a uh, a reasonable assumption, but if they were reasonably smart about it, the cost would be about $27 trillion per year over this century. So we're talking about spending $27 trillion to avoid a $4.5 trillion loss, which of course is a really bad deal. This does not mean we should do nothing about climate, but it means that going net zero, certainly by 2050, is just simply an incredibly too costly policy. We're trying to spend too much to gain a fairly small benefit, so every dollar spent will deliver about 17 cents of climate benefits. What we should be doing is to increase R&D into green energy so we find a solution in the long run, and we should make sure that we lift people out of poverty which is one of the best ways to make sure that people are more resilient to anything that happens. Remember, you know, if, if you're poor and a hurricane hits, you are devastated. If you're rich, like in Florida, it's a minor inconvenience, mostly. Uh, this does not mean that we shouldn't also do something about global warming, but it means the vast majority of what we can do to help people is to lift them out of poverty. And oh getting people out of poverty is also incredibly good in all kinds of other ways apart from uh, climate of course it means that they can feed their kids they can send them to better schools they can have more opportunity they don't uh, have to die and be fed as bad food and so on so you know lifting people out of poverty is just simply an incredibly good policy in all kinds of different ways plus it actually deals with a lot of the climate problem so this is a very short version of it be smart do the really effective policies, but please don't do the very ineffective ones.
2: And so much of this, Bjorn, and referencing not only your recent uh, op-ed in the journal, but also going back to 2015, is uh, I can't help but feel a messaging issue uh, because it has not been part of the debate where there's common ground around acknowledgement that the climate is changing and that what we have to do is to be smart about where we're going to invest our money but also our political capital and where we can get consensus Hmm. and so uh, there's a, I'll call it a second order of consequence with uh, particularly with a younger generation that feels as though the adults in the room, and at least here in the states, where looks like we're going to have a um, presidential contest between an 80-year-old and someone in their, you know, late 70s, that there, there is uh, a generation that is betraying the trust. I'll use that word, and not addressing, and not thinking about, and not worried about the things that, you know the younger generation is. Hmm. And I think there's some very important societal consequences when you do have that that chasm. My wife was uh, laughing at me the other night because I regaled her with a tale of how we walked out uh, against school policy when I was in high school on Earth Day, and I'm not gonna date myself too much, but it was about 50 years ago. and I said, you know, this has been going on for a long time where, where younger generations no longer trust their parents, their grandparents, you know, the people, the adults in the room who are running things, that they're actually thinking about and addressing these things. And so um, um, the message that you're conveying here, uh, I feel, needs to be heard, but, and, and for people to see here are the things, I'm not saying the, do, the doable dozen, you know. But here are the things that can be done, hmm. where there is political consensus, where it's not viewed as a zero-sum game for some, and you know, benefit to others, and it's not part of the global, you know, geopolitical competition. And just as you think about, because uh, you've in your book you've identified a number of, I will pragmatic and practical steps that we can take. Um, tell me how your organization is thinking about the climate and and the pragmatic and practical things where money can be spent with a high
0: ROI. So, so I, I think you're absolutely right. We need to find a better way to have a good co- conversation. I think one of the important parts is that there is this tendency on climate, but really on everything else, uh, to either make it into this, it's the end of the world, we're all going to die. And of course, if that was true, we should spend everything in the kitchen sink on this problem or on the other side to say, this is not a problem at all. And neither side is right. Uh, this is not what the UN climate panel is telling us. If you read the report, which is a very, very long and very boring report, uh, you know, but very informative. If you want to, uh, it'll tell you this is a problem. This is something that's real, but it's a, you know it's. A problem uh, and and we have a hard time sort of finding ourselves in that middle of the uh, of the street and this is crucial because if you think it's the end of the world or if you think it's nothing of course you're not going to agree to uh, 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 for the one side you're not going to agree to doing anything but everything and on the other side you're not really going to agree to anything uh, but the right answer is you should do something you should do, you should do the smart stuff and so what we've done we, we work with uh, uh, almost 50 uh, climate economists, the world's top climate economists, three Nobel laureates uh, to try to find out where can you spend an extra dollar and do the most good for climate. Uh, we wrote a book for Cambridge University Press, about a, uh, you know, a blurb from uh, uh, the head of the UN climate panel uh, and uh, Bill Gates and many others. Uh, and basically what we found was you should invest a lot more money in research and development into green energy. The simple point here is right now, most nations are not switching to green energy because it's too expensive. Now, people will tell you it's cheaper, but of course that's only, uh, you know, solar and wind is cheaper, sure, but only when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. And that's the real challenge here. That's why most countries are not actually gonna invest a lot of money in it unless their arm is twisted or unless there's lots of uh, subsidies on, on, on the back, uh, back end of this. But if we could innovate green energy to be cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone would switch. In a sense that was what the US did very inadvertently uh, when you discovered fracking. Uh, this was you know funded to a very large extent by uh, George Bush uh, and uh, DARPA uh, you know, with George Mitchell down in Texas. This is not because they cared about climate change but it was because they wanted to get more fossil fuels. But the side effect if you will was that they made gas much cheaper than coal and since gas emits about half as much CO2 and coal The U.S. has reduced its emissions more than any other country in the world, not because of Obama or because of Trump, not because they were mostly climate focused, but simply because gas became much cheaper than coal and so the U.S. wholesale switched from coal to gas. We should do the same thing in China. We should do the same thing in many other countries and of course we should get many many more countries to use gas rather than coal. That would be the obvious first thing uh, to do to actually get the, uh, the world moving. Now a lot of people especially a lot of purists feel oh but that's you can't do that because gas is still a fossil fuel. And yes, it's not a perfect solution, but, you know, halving CO2 emissions is pretty good. And if you could do it and make money off it at the same time, that's the best possible outcome for everyone. These are the kinds of things we need to do. And then, of course... We need to develop fourth generation nuclear to be so cheap that everybody will want it they, you know they 're certainly promising that that will happen, but the actual reality is we 're nowhere near having a fourth generation nuclear uh, power generator. There are lots of other technologies out there. we should be investing in all of them, just like I talked to you about the agricultural research and development to get yield enhancements for you know, uh, for some of these Missed, uh, uh things are so not for wheat and, uh, and corn, which we already have investigated, but for uh, sorghum and cassava and all these other uh, more niche uh, products that are especially used in poor countries. We should get higher yields there through agricultural re- research and development. In the same way, we should tackle climate change by focusing on making green energy so cheap that not just rich, well-meaning Americans and Europeans will buy it, but Chinese Indians and Africans will buy it and that only happens if green energy becomes so cheap that it basically outcompetes fossil fuel. Uh, So again, This is about being smart, it's about being uh, pragmatic, not about saying, it's the end of the world, we need to throw everything in the kitchen sink at this because it's not, and it's not gonna happen. We've clearly seen that over the last 30 years. We're just not gonna convince most people uh, to go down that route, and once the bill comes through, most people actually revolt, uh, uh, revolt against this. It's not by saying, oh, it's not a problem at all, and putting your head in the sand. It's about being smart about this. It's a problem, there are smart ways to fix it, It's not the biggest problem in the world, but it's one of the problems that we need to fix. And I think what comes out of best things first, as we started talking about, is also for most people, and I think this is also an important lesson for many kids uh, and young people, for most people on the planet, climate change is just simply a pretty distant worry. You know, the temperature change in a hundred years compared to the fact that my kids might die tonight. Uh, that I don't have enough food, that they, we have terrible education, that there's huge corruption, that there's not enough nutrition, all these other things. Those are the real big issues for most people on this planet. And, of course, we should also be thinking about fixing those at really low cost.
2: Bjorn, uh, thank you for a great discussion. I'm also reminded, as embedded in in. Your approach is the notion that uh, perfection is the enemy of the good. <laughs> yeah,
0: that... this is really about making right. making an impact, moving it in the right direction. And I'm delighted when, uh, when people hear some of these things and actually act on some of it.
2: Right. Uh, just in closing, uh, what's next? What are you working on now? that we should so, be looking towards.
0: Well, so now, of course, it's about getting everybody to hear it. So I'm on your podcast, and I'm hopefully uh, getting some people to start thinking about this. Uh, we try to write a lot of articles. We try to get out in papers across the world. Uh, we're working with governments to do this for their individual uh, uh, situation. So I'm going to Tonga, the uh, uh, small Pacific island nation. Right. Uh, uh, where we've done a big project with their government to try and say of all the things that you want to fix where can you spend money and do the most good and we've identified some of the things and I think some of them they will want to do and they will want their partners namely New Zealand and Australia to help fund so again it's a question of saying if you can't do it all what are the smartest things to do we've done that for Eswatini and for Namibia and we're doing this for several other uh, uh, low and low middle income countries and the point here is again to get this message out. But really, to me, it's mostly about getting people to think about this. It's great to know that there are these 12 amazing things and you know, if you have any chance to do one of them or focus on them and help, or you know, just donate to uh, uh, one of these 12 causes, that's wonderful. But it's even more important that we just start asking that very basic question of all our politicians and everyone, all the do-gooders in the world. Great, how much is this gonna cost? How much good is it gonna do? Is this the best thing that you can spend your time, effort, and money on?
2: Conversation to be continued, I hope, Bjorn. Yes. This has uh, been great. And uh, I can't help but maybe quote a little scripture here uh, from the book of Ecclesiastes. It's uh, all been said before, done before. Uh, Nothing new under the sun, just to paraphrase it, and I just find what what you're doing is just a logical extension of some of the criticism of our political system and what's broken and what needs to be done. I still remember somewhere in our, uh, here in the U.S., in our, uh, the guidelines of new regulations, I think it's been forgotten about. Bjorn. Uh, there was supposed to be cost-benefit analysis around everything. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to dig up the regs. I, it's, it's been a long time since I've seen that done, but this is absolutely terrific. It's also a testament to uh, your individual and obviously your organization's uh, entrepreneurialism—not um, waiting for political solutions, but actually grabbing hold of uh, what needs to be done and highlighting it and publicizing it, and so. Thank you for your continued oh. public service.
0: Well, thank you very much, and thanks for a great conversation. And I hope uh, I'm very glad you enjoyed the book, and yeah. uh, I'm just hoping that we can get this message out to more people.
2: To be continued, and that's that's our job. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you again, Bjorn. Thank you.
1: This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real-world events, offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. Thanks for listening.